Hi, this is Katie Liu um, from OCAD University. Um, just by the, the site by the Don River, I uh, found some snapdragon flowers, butter and eggs. And uh, it seemed like there were also chicory there. Uh, butter and eggs is also found by the Bugsley Spit as well. There's a lot there. But because uh, it com it's, it's coming near to fall, winter, so not a lot of them are out now, but like all of them were covered by dust and all of them were covered by uh, all the construction site at dirt. So, yeah, I'm looking at a lot of flowers out there. But that's all I have to say. And I'm thinking these people think they can clean up the dawn. They are out of their minds. I want to work with them. Don River Radio. Welcome to Don River Radio. I'm your host, Dylan Gautier, and this is episode three, Rivers Lost, Rivers Found. We're going to be speaking with Helen Mills and John Wilson, learning about their work with Lost River Walks and their efforts to bring back the dawn. We respectfully acknowledge that the sacred lands through which the Don River flows are the traditional territories, homelands, and Nunagat of the respective First Nations, Matisse Nations, and Inuit who are the longtime stewards of these lands. We acknowledge that Toronto is built on occupied indigenous territory, traditional homelands of the Wendat, Patoon, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, the meeting place of Toronto is still the home to many indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and we're grateful to have the opportunity to work within this territory and the community as a whole. All right, so I just have to say I've been so excited to have this conversation with Helen Mills and John Wilson ever since I heard about the Lost Rivers Project and um, ever since I encountered um, references to John's work in Jennifer Bunnell's book. Um, so I'm calling in from Lenape Hoking today in New York City, and um, it's really my pleasure to get to speak with you both today um, about your work and about the watercourses around Toronto. So um, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with us at Don River Radio today. Helen, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Um, can you tell me how you got started with Lost Rivers and uh, tell me about your background? I always have a really hard time introducing myself, but I'm Helen. I was born in South Africa, came to Calgary at a young age, uh, moved to Toronto in 1969. And I guess the roots of my whole experience with Lost Rivers began with that arrival and experiencing some odd aspects of the landscape, such as these sunken parks with squared off edges that I, I remember almost shaking my head like a cat or a dog getting out of the water, a little bit confused and then writing it off as, oh, it's just the way Toronto is. And then many, many years later, discovering that these were actually the signs of buried creeks and old brickyards and quarries that existed on the path of those creeks. 
So that, that's how my story began and my immediate desire to bring the creeks back to the surface of people's awareness, which ultimately happened through the Toronto Green community and in the form of community-based walking tours, an amazing website created by Peter Hare, which is a, a goldmine of physiographic information and settler history. So when did you start investigating Lost Rivers? Since 1994. Well, me personally, forever. But as part of the Green community, our first walk was in August of 1994. Awesome. Thank you so much, Helen. John, if you could talk a little bit about your work on the Don. Sure, yes. <clears throat> I'm, I'm John Wilson. I uh, I work with Lost Rivers. I also am a co-chair of the West Don Lands Committee, which is a community-based uh, coalition in the area of the mouth, of, near the mouth of the Don and the waterfront. I came to Canada in 1972 from the United States. I was one of a generation of folks who um, became disillusioned, if you will, with uh, with the United States over the Vietnam War and came here to really start a new life here. I don't know if that was my first thought when I came running across the border, but uh, it has worked out very well for me. I, I've really enjoyed living in Toronto and becoming embedded here. I first encountered the Don River soon after I came here. I had grown up in in very rural kind of foresty farming kind of community in northern Vermont and was quite uh, disoriented, if you will, coming to a big city and finding the Don River was a way to reconnect with a lot of those, you know, natural habitat, natural features that I that I had been accustomed to being close to. And so my first encounter was in Wilkett Creek Park. It was actually in a in those hippie days. It was uh, the the day that I opened my uh, doors of perception, as they said at the time, uh, <laughs> and became, you know, just really uh, engaged with the Don River. We would walk through the Don River. We would try to, you know, plant seeds of, from our marijuana stashes and things like that. But uh, much later, I became uh, involved with the task force to bring back the dawn, became the chair of that, and really started working on that as a way to, I had young children at the time as a way to kind of provide some direction and leadership for my children who were hearing, you know, horrific stories about the the environment collapsing around them, the rainforest disappearing, and, and it was a way to, for me, and uh, for me to sort of give to my children a, a kind of a direction as to how one could respond uh, without just always taking in bad news, but actually do something positive in, you know, the natural environment around us. So the task force to bring back the Dawn was, was created in order to make the Dawn River clean, green, and accessible. It had been polluted and just degraded over, you know, over a hundred years. And uh, we're, still in the process, although the task force no longer exists, many of us are still in the process of trying to bring it back to some degree of an integrity with the cycle of life, if you will. Now, what year did you start working with the task force? But the task force formed in 1989. I became involved in 1995. I was chair for uh, 10 years from 2000 to 
2010 or thereabouts. So. so it seems like the late 80s and early 90s were kind of hotbed for environmental activism in Toronto. Can you talk a little bit more, Helen, about what was going on at that time? Well, well, I was well, I was very, very, very influenced by the work I did when I went back to university and did some physical geography stuff. Um, I was very influenced by the uh, Royal Commission on the Waterfront and the book that they published called Regeneration, which talked about an ecosystem approach to looking after rivers. And I did a lot of thinking about what that meant and how it was talked about in, for example, the document 40 Steps to a New Dawn. And I was very influenced by 40 Steps to a New Dawn and the Dawn Task Force. And I must say that I was around for the Dawn's funeral. And I have the original pollution probe, probe booklet about that funeral. So I had a deep despair about the Dawn as as per John's description of his children. And, and I remember at that first meeting of the Toronto Green community that Adele Freeman from the Toronto Conservation Authority handed me 40 steps to a new dawn, which was their big strategic plan. And I remember quickly leafing through and seeing the vision statement about clean water and birds and fish and people strolling beside the river and and thinking these people think they can clean up the dawn they are out of their minds i want to work with them it was just it was like that you know but but that basic thinking of an ecosystem approach and understanding that a river basin is is a fixed area where you can me- measure inputs and outputs to some extent, as had been done in some studies of the Hubbard Brook in in the USA, um, led me to thinking about how we could understand the lost rivers in that kind of ecosystem framework. So I had this idea that we could organize communities on the lost rivers and that we would ultimately want work to have the water leaving our homes cleaner than it was when it came in. And that this would ultimately have a very good effect on the Don because we were working as a neighborhood group. So we began with the rivers that flowed through that neighborhood, which is North Toronto, the neighborhood of North Toronto. I, I think there was a very strong sort of synchrony in the thinking of many people at that time. So that kind of importance of the local community to these efforts um, seems really important here. And I'm curious, John, you were also living close to the Don at the time that you got involved with the task force to bring back the Don. Is that right? Uh, I did. I, I do and did then live right, right next to the Riverdale Park, which is, you know, really where you can access the Don River. And Certainly, I agree that for me, um, Helen and I came into this at more or less the same generation, and the um, the work of the uh, Cromie Commission, the, the Royal Commission on the Future of Toronto Waterfront, I think inspired a, a lot of people to really look at uh, 
our water watersheds as being something that could be could be rescued. That um, you know that test that uh, royal commission you know was really uh, instigated when uh, the International Joint Commission declared that uh, Toronto's harbor was one of its areas of concern. The AOC, the designation which still applies to Toronto's waterfront today, and. Uh, the Royal Commission basically went through a whole process of trying to figure out how it would be to make Toronto's heart waterfront clean, green, and accessible as, you know, and again, uh, and realized that it was, you know, this was not a case of a point source pollution. This was not something that you could point your finger at. It was one of those classic situations where if you point your finger, you know, like more fingers are pointing back at yourself. We're all part of the of the problem and the and the fact that there were two million plus people living in close proximity and not always taking care of the waste that we create. Um, we're not going to be able to just shut down some factory somewhere and fix the whole problem. We have to really rebuild our city um, and the way we live in in association with the natural surroundings. It was a, a kind of a you know as I say coming from. You know, a rural environment was kind of a vision that I I could easily be attracted by. And, um, you know, so for many of us, you know, it was one of the things that the task force was involved with was making trails so that people could actually get to the Don River. Uh, It was was impossible to do in in the 1989-1990 period. Um, You had to actually, you know, cut chain link fences or climb over them or climb on, in my case, under them. Uh, to get to the river. And when we made accessible stairs, cases, and and trails along the river, all of a sudden, it became a part of people's lives that they had forgotten that they missed. It was almost like being reunited with an arm that had been cut off or something like that. And it became, I think in the nineties and, and aughts, you know, the city of Toronto rediscovered the, the Don river and especially in its lower reaches in ways that had, that we didn't even know that we were missing. It's such a beautiful metaphor of reconnecting with that lost limb and thinking about how providing access led um, this whole kind of, uh, movement to reclaim the dawn. So what happened to the task force? It was a creation of city council. And with each term of city council, advisory bodies like the task force had to be renewed. In 2010, the city elected a new mayor with a very different vision. And his name was Rob Ford. He was quite famous at a period of time. His administration decided that there was no longer need for to be advised about the future of the Dawn River. So we were basically uh, not renewed, disbanded, if you will. And uh, we, I think most people who were involved with the task force then went out and sort of, you know, seeded into other other activities and other uh, other directions. Uh, me, uh, the Waterfront and the West Onlands Committee and others became involved in stewardship projects and, and local park park people sorts of activities. And uh, we've all, I think, probably magnified our impact by being spread across uh, a wider range of the city. So that brought you to the West Donlands Committee. 
Can you talk a little bit about that work? The West Downlands Committee is um, in a, a coalition of uh, neighborhood groups, uh, business groups, uh, civil society groups, uh, you know, parks groups. It tries to be a, a broad net and is focused on the lower the lower west side of the Don River, if you will. So the West Don lands. And that area was one of the first areas to be um, master planned by Waterfront Toronto when Waterfront Toronto came into existence. So the work that is done at the West Onlands Committee is, you know, it goes the gamut of city planning, literally urban planning and urban design and streetscapes and building building architecture through to heritage uh, preservation and heritage interpretation, uh, as well as as well as you know climate issues and and the park parks in the area, the management of the parks. And, you know, social issues, a very broad uh, approach to to a, a regeneration of the city and the city in relation to the river. I mean, it's, it's always been an organization that recognizes its proximity to the Don River, proximity to the mouth of the Don River. The mouth of the Don River has been probably for me the, the piece of the puzzle that I feel the greatest uh, reward for having been a part of. You know, I still sit on several stakeholder committees uh, with Waterfront Toronto uh, for Keyside, for the Dawn uh, Mouth uh, Flood Protection Project. And, you know, as as, as kind of a representative of the West Dawnlands Committee, I still lead Lost River Walks. And so I'm still engaged with that. And often those Lost River Walks tend to be in that same part of the world, although I, I do I do travel across the city. The activities really are just advising and, and listening and trying to help uh, Waterfront Toronto and the city, who are both, you know, partners in the waterfront area, to, you know, engage with a broad, a broad spectrum of people who, uh, care about the waterfront and, and use the waterfront from, you know, people who go down to picnic there to people who, you know, go to bird watch there to people who go ride their bikes and, and run and, you know, all the various ways that you um, a boat, you know, whatever, all the various ways that you can um, really fall in love with the fact that this is a, this is a, a waterfront city. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that uh, that restoration of uh, a natural uh, river mouth at the at the at the mouth of the dawn is certainly not the end of the restoration of the dawn river. It's almost like the beginning of what needs to be done for the dawn river. Uh, but it really is, you know, a big deal because it's so obvious and so uh, embedded right in the middle of the city, in a part of the city that most people have forgotten even exists, you know, 75% plus of the people of Toronto could not find the Portlands and certainly wouldn't know that the mouth of the Don River is there. So, you know, when that project is done, you know, all of a sudden, I believe that we will have a huge love affair with, with, with the water, with the Don River and with uh, the possibilities of restoring some degree of ecological integrity in a, in a city setting. 
you know, as I was uh, trying to figure out how to get from Evergreen Brickworks to the Don, I realized that it's still, you know, your description, John's description of kind of needing to navigate chaining fences and railroad tracks and other kind of unfriendly infrastructure, um, you know, still exists along the way. And um, if if you were leading or when you have led Lost Rivers walks along the Don, do you can you actually find a way to walk to walk the course of the Don today? And how does that um, how does that work? Well, John, I think that you, me, and Jennifer, we did do a big series of walks that concluded, I forget if it was around Eglinton and Lawrence. So, yeah, you can do big pieces. There are places where the railway makes it illegal if you go on the wrong side of the river. There are places where there are golf courses in the way. Yeah. It's still fragmented in many different levels. So there's no uh, one. There's no one kind of unified trail that you can take. And if you were to kind of get down to the dawn level and walk, you know, right alongside it, can you can you do that part of the way? Definitely. And I mean, I think John can speak to the nuts and bolts of that better than me. But yes, you can get from the lake quite a long way north with on a path that directs you clearly and of course there are various crossings and things that you have to navigate as you as you do this so when you're, and then, when you're you know oh, getting from the dawn into a lost river is another separate question that's, that's what i was going to ask you next is uh when, yeah. when you are walking when you're walking lost rivers how do you you know uh manifest or summon you know, what, what isn't there, what isn't visible, what isn't maybe, you know, sensed, uh, but you know is there? How, like, what, what kinds of exercises or practices do you use with the folks who join you on these walks to, to share what, you know, what's lost? So, okay, so this is an interesting thing, because on the very first walk, there were 36 people, and they keep coming. And we are primarily walking on city streets. You know, we're standing at Young and Manor Road and saying this was a swamp. Or we're standing at the Eaton Center at Holy Trinity and saying this was Tattle Creek and the marsh was just up there. Um, I think that people connect with the symptoms in the landscape, whether it's a sunken park or a road that deviates from the grid or a dead end or a house that's sinking or their own personal experience of, oh my God, now I know why my basement always floods. There's, there are just many, many different levels that people can engage and are intrigued with the whole idea. Your supermarkets, supermarkets are a really good indicator for lost creeks. And 95% of Toronto's parks are in lost creeks. Somebody made a connection for me recently about the power of connecting past, present, and future. That that anything that transcends time in some way. And, and I think that there's something about that with Lost Rivers, about connecting back and and looking forward at the same time, imagining and becoming re-empowered about not just the river, but the fabric of the city as all being the dreaded word watershed. 
that the water is in us, in the concrete, in the trees, in the animals, in the sky, in the water. So the river is not just a blue line on a map. So I, I think it's a powerful way to connect people with that without even having to necessarily say the word, watershed. Another very profound piece for me was the process. You know, I came here, I was devoid of Canadian and North American history, actually, just by an accident of fate because of switching schools. I got European history three times in a row and know nothing about North America, let alone the rest of the world. So I slowly began to, as, as I was doing the research and being introduced to a lot of things, I would run into things uh, like Henry Scadding saying, well, in those days, the boys couldn't just go out into the woods alone because you'd never know who you'd meet there. You might meet an Indian or a voyageur. So those were these little symptoms about there was another reality here. The, you know, the, the regular settler heritage story didn't quite match up with these little things that I would bump into. And so I gradually began to deepen my sense of history and um, become more and more mind-blown by the depth of that history. And then, I, I guess, with Rivers Rising, that became the first manifestation of us unsettling, unsettling our inner settler and connecting with Indigenous and newcomer and BIPOC communities in a, in a whole new, different way. And then for me, that has become just a very moving experience, I, you know, and I, I'm thinking particularly of a walk that I went on a few weeks ago with Vivian Recolette and a bunch of other Indigenous women in High Park, where an offering was made to uh, Wendigo Creek, and I think that standing with them by the water and hearing them sing to the water was completely transformative in my sense of possible relationships. Because I think with me, it's always been very silent. Um, you know, it's, it's the experience of walking together, feeling the land, feeling when you're going uphill or downhill, noticing that you're in a valley, but where's the water? And this was a very much different experience. So I think there's, there's a different relationship emerging as we walk with different people. And I think I've kind of wandered a little bit from that question but this has been in the back of my mind since the beginning of my first answer that I didn't get to this part two part. 
I love this. I mean, this is such such an important piece of, of of the story, and I I think it's something we we've been coming back to as well with um, looking at you know both the work going on in in the uh, in the Portlands and um, and thinking about you know like whose whose Don River has this been you know how like there has been uh, from the kind of colonial imposition of like the straightening of the Don this idea that it could be tamed and you know really taken right like someone's body is taken uh you know against against the river's uh kind of form you know formal will to, to wander and deviate right and so from from that to like this kind of new new beginning and opening where you know i think the other the other thought this is just from um when you're talking about unsettling kind of inner settler thinking about how much the um the kind of settler uh city of toronto is churning itself up and turning its own like recent past into landfill, you know, taking buildings down and putting them out into the, you know, what was the harbor, moving the harbor out, all of this kind of work of like almost eating itself and then kind of reburying parts of its kind of more recent colonial past. And of course, the kind of pre-colonial past beneath that. Um, but so this question of an opening and thinking about, you know, who, who's Don, does this get to be? And beyond this point where there's a, as you said, it's a starting point, right? Um, so what, what comes next? Yeah, uh, the, 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 the challenges, I think, are going to be uh, to understand our own, uh, our own footprint and to learn to tread lightly um, and tread with care and tread um, intentionally, if you will, thinking about what we're doing. Um, it, it, it's um, it's very easy in an urban setting to 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 wander off into a you know almost a virtual reality, um, <clears throat> you know virtual realities are kind of the flavor of the moment in some ways, but in a in an odd way, it strikes me as though many people come to the city from a rural place. It, it fits for me that there is a temptation to live in the city as a virtual, a virtual environment. Um, but I don't think that that's actually helpful. Um, I think that, um, you know, our, 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 our climate footprint is exacerbated and intensified when we lose track of uh, the fact that the city is still is still embedded in a natural environment. Uh, so you know, I, I'm hoping that that we, while we uh, celebrate you know the accessibility of the New Dawn River and and do all these incredibly uh, groundbreaking um, rebuilding of re-knitting of the natural world at the mouth of the Don River, that we also take time to think about how um, we can, you know, lighten our footprint on, on the parts of nature that aren't us, <laughs> the non-human nature. So coming into my head right now is the renaming of parts of the Lower Don or the river itself as once Gontanoche. And 
I just wondered if you have thoughts about that renaming as a an opening or an offering um, to rethinking history and the future of the dawn, in particular with the relationships between humans and non-humans and where we sit with that. Um, where can changing the name of river take us? It's 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 really important to to me to understand the meaning of that of that word because it to me uh, speaks to a deep understanding on the part of of indigenous people of the uh, of the kind of spiritual connection, if you will, to, to use that word without trying to define it. Um, and also the, you know, the, the, the watershed connectivity. I understand the word to be once good enough. Uh, it was interpreted for me by Basil Johnson, uh, who uh, was a member of the Nawash Chippewas of the Lake Huron area. Uh, he was also an educator and uh, worked at the Royal Ontario Museum. And he was the most knowledgeable person in Anishinaabe, Anishinaabemowin language that I knew. So I had heard it said that it was this word that seemed un unpronounceable. So I just found his phone number and called him up and asked him what it meant and asked him how to say it. And um, the, um, the point of land made pure by fire or made, um, made, uh, clean by fire, something to, to that of that sort. It strikes me as though it's an understanding that the river is related to the island. The island is 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 created in in a kind of a dynamic uh, interaction between the lake, the moving um, gravel that's moving along the course of the of the waterfront, and the river itself, all working together to make a a natural feature. And that it is made pure by fire has, speaks to, I think, probably the fact that this was used for ceremony. This was a place, the Toronto Island was a place for ceremonial activities uh, where, you know, one connected with, with greater powers than ourselves. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Helen. So, so there is some really interesting stuff going on. First of all, I think there is a deep settler perspective or look or gaze in terms of sometimes they talk about evergreen as a better homes and gardens restoration, right? And I don't in any way mean to demean the enormity of the achievement of having created that and done that restoration. But I think there are some interesting things. Uh, one being, nothing like that is happening on Black Creek, on the wrong side of the tracks. There's some pretty hardcore, hard-edged engineering going on, and it's completely different circumstances in so many different ways. But it's interesting to notice. Um, but from uh, the most interesting thing for me is the small group of indigenous people who are taking back their treaty rights as we speak. And I'm thinking of Doug Anderson uh, and his little group on the Humber River and, and the early days when they began to work with the city and the TRCA 
And the city and the TRCA said, oh, okay, well, you've been here a couple of years now. Maybe we should get you to sign this stewardship agreement. And I, I'll never forget Doug Anderson telling the story of him attaching the treaties and the, inter, the what is it, the International Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People to that agreement and sending it back unsigned to the city. So, you know, the, the sad early history of the dawn upon settlement is that the Mississaugas initially did a lot of fishing and they made money taking that fish to market. And then they got booted off Fisherman's Island, as it became known, which is the Sandy Ridge from Toronto Island over to the edge of Ashbridges at Kew Beach and ended up in very dire economic straits through being prevented from trading and through um, losing hunting grounds as land became fenced in and subdivided and real estateified. So... Um, there's a, a real visceral direct connection that's being taken back. And uh, that these rivers were never quote unquote ceded. You know, those treaty rights protect those rights to this day. And uh, I just think that that's going to become more and more front and center, including the claim of the Mississaugas around water rights. That's really focused on pushing for the care of water in a different way. Yeah. So we'll see more of that. And it won't be just a matter of how are we bringing people in because they're here. And it's going to be more about them I don't know if bringing us in is the right word, but definitely about allyship and connecting with each other and the land and the water in in a way that really upends our subject-object worldview. This is so beautiful, Helen. Um, you know, this just leads me to think again about the relationship between access and action and memory and understanding of these places. And I'm just wondering where should one go from here? Um, what can we do? Go walking, learn the city, connect with different groups and people. You, you'll find your direction. There's a direction that we all have in some way. And yeah, educate yourself. There's so much to learn and understand and think about. But you know what? Just physically being present and using your senses to understand the city is so important. Uh, and then having a theoretical background and understanding policy. You can't do it all, but you have to find your niche. And I, I think that's a process. I think that's a really perfect place for us to leave it. Um, thank you both so much for joining me today. And um, this has been a really wonderful conversation. And I look forward to going on a Lost River walk with you both soon. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, John. Wonderful. Thanks, Thank Dylan. you so much, Helen. Um, Good to see you, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Bye -bye. Great to be with you today. Thank yeah. you. 
This is Dawn River Radio. I'm Dylan Gauthier. Our collective is Mari Liberum. You can find us at thefreeseas.org. Our project is dawnriverradio.ca. We're hosted by Evergreen Brickworks in Waterfront, Toronto, and supported by Artworks TO Year of Public Art. Our audio engineer is Tom Upjohn. Music by John Tarr. Special thanks to our collaborators Shannon Gerard and Maria Hupfield, curators Charlene Lau, Chloe Catan, and Carrie Swinar. <laughs>